0: And the world of your dreams. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 101 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast. My guest today is Avi Greenberg. Avi is an incredible dude. Him and I became fast friends after this conversation. You're definitely going to want to connect with Avi in all the places. He's most active on Instagram. So you can connect with him at AviLu, A V I L U, on Instagram. His website is avigreenberg.com and his LinkedIn, Avi Greenberg. These are all linked in the show notes. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for an organization of my guest choice. And Avi has selected the organization Breathe for ALS, which is also linked in the show notes. Of all of the 101 episodes I've now done for the show, I don't think I ever before Avi had someone Specifically focusing on the breath and breathwork. And the breath is so fundamental and foundational for our well being. I do breathwork every single day. It might be Wim Hof breathing. I might do nose breathing, box breathing, four, seven, eight breathing, some combination of all of it. And to be honest, I don't know too much of the science behind it. I just know it helps me feel really good. So I wanted to have. Avi on the show, a dedicated expert and practitioner of this work, to break down just what exactly is going on in our body when we are intentional about the way that we breathe, and what's at risk when we aren't intentional about the way that we breathe. If we are shallow mouth breathing all the time, what kind of friction does that cause within us? Avi's been on an incredible journey the past few years or so. He's had a near death experience hiking in Mexico he's done ayahuasca in Peru. And so he's had lots of transformative experiences that woke him up to the fact that he wasn't living into his potential. And that became something that was important for him and something he supports his clients with as well is, are you living the life that you want to be living? And if not, how can you start to build towards the life that you want to be living? We also focus towards the end on a challenge that we are both in right now. We we are both young fathers, Avi and I. Avi's a father of two. I am a father of a three and a half month old at the time of this episode's release. And parenting brings out the best and the, and the worst of us in my experience. And so Avi and I jam about that for a little bit at the end. This is a long, rich and deep conversation. I probably say that about many of my other episodes as well, but this one covers a a breadth of so many different things. And perhaps the most important thing is that Avi is just such an easy guy to connect with. You're going to get the sense immediately. He just is a good dude. He really cares about supporting people and being well. And he has a very approachable way about him that just makes it easy to connect with him. So I'm going to let Avi take it from here. And with all that said, Settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Avi Greenberg. All right, Avi, my friend, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be here.
0: (laughs) We were talking about so many cool things before we hit record, and I I have a feeling that they're going to be peppered into the conversation at various times, but... I start every single conversation with the same question. And I've never heard you ask this one before. Most people haven't been asked it. But uh, anyway, it gives a little bit of a portal into your childhood. And the question is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up?
1: It's <laughs> a good question. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is my dad's an ER physician. He's a doctor. He's been a director of an ER in Broward. For the last 30 years and he's gone through a couple divorces one was to my mom and another one was to his second wife with with that in mind that there was obviously some transitions and the people that were at the dinner tables a constant was I used to always ask my dad if anybody died today in his ER and mm-hmm. I don't know why it sounds morbid now like it, it totally sounds morbid but it was something I always asked and it was like kind of like this really definitive question to be like, did you have a good day or did you have a bad day? Like, and it was based on whether or not somebody had passed or transitioned at his office or in his job because he's an ER doctor. So he's seeing people all day long that are sick, stitches, you know, cuts, heart attacks, you name it. And, and to me as a kid, that was like a way to define whether or not he had a positive or a negative day. Of whether or not mm. somebody had died. In my mind, I think that's why I was asking it. And and rarely he said yes. But, of course, there were times he would say yes. And there was even times where he'd say, yeah, actually two people passed today. So, yeah, that yeah. was that was a constant at, at the dinner table. Something I think I asked him all the way into and po- possibly through high school. So, yeah. Yeah, and then when my mom and dad got divorced, my mom moved to Paris in France. And I would have dinners obviously at her house as well. I stayed with my dad in the States and my sister and my mom moved to Paris. So her, our dinners were, were a bit different, you know, in Paris. My stepdad wasn't a doctor. He was a businessman. He was French. He was a bit older. And my mom liked to cook. My stepmom didn't like to really cook. So that also created a different dynamic in the households. I, I grew, grew up really enjoying like a, a home-cooked meal mm. because I, I got the experience of having it in homes with my mom and not having it when my mom wasn't around and there was a stepmom there or somebody else. So that was something as well that, that I definitely noticed a big difference in the houses that I, I grew up in because it wasn't just one house.
0: Mm. I'm going to attempt to connect a, a few dots here. Yeah, so for sure. One thing that I've learned about you in researching you is that when something isn't working a relationship yeah. a job something at all in your life isn't yeah. working you you act on it you say yeah. if this isn't working i'm going to move on to something else and and i think it's very common for people yeah. to do the opposite to keep grinding and there's there's two elements of what you just described with your parents that are really interesting i'm wondering how they're connected so with your father mortality being able to talk about death from a yeah. young age, which is something that we don't speak a lot about. Yeah. And with your parents being divorced, being able to visit your mom in a different country yeah. and, and seemingly traveling a lot more, being uh, immersed in different types of experiences and cultures. I'm, I'm just wondering what level of influence the reflections that you shared with confronting death and yeah. traveling and having those experiences, how do you think that affected the way that you made choices with... Yeah, this isn't working for me, right? Yeah. This job's not working.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really insightful thought you had there because I think my mom definitely had that where if something wasn't working, she would just try something new. And, and, and you know, she's originally from Mexico. She's not even from the States. So she moved from Mexico with my dad to New York. They left New York when my dad got the job at the ER in Broward. So they moved to South Florida and then they eventually divorced. She left my dad for, for my stepdad and then she moved across the across the world, across the ocean to, to to basically start a new life there. And my dad, my dad stays, he's still at the same ER now. He still works at the same ER, you know. So he's in a lot of ways like this consistent like everyday like kind of like baby boomer, like get up go to work, do the thing, you're supposed to go to college, you're supposed to do this, that and the other. My mom is very much on the other side of the spectrum, like didn't go to college, was an art dealer, like kind of lived this sort of like, sort of wild existence at times and just kind of mm-hmm. lived in in this other zone where she she kind of decided what she wanted to do based on how she felt. And for better or worse, I mean, listen, there was times where she'd blow things up and it was kind of like, whoa, here we go. And there were other times where it was exciting. And I think I have that side to me where like, I have the grounded side. Like my dad tried to nurture and like instill in me, like, you got to go to college. I went to college. I got my undergraduate degree. I got a job right away. I hated various different jobs. I try to stay there. I try to like seek the six figure lifestyle, salary, you know, make more money, get a family, buy a house, the whole deal. And I just it just wasn't it wasn't working for me. And I try I really did try to make it work. And I think the side of my mom to be like, well fuck that. If it doesn't work, then don't do it. Then just do something else. Mm. Like bounce. Get out. And that was something that I, I I I did because I saw it could be done. And not to say that my mom moving to Paris and marrying my stepdad and kind of being able to shift and adjust so quickly was like necessarily always the right decision. But I also sometimes agree like indecision is the wrong decision, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like, if it's not working and you stick with it, then you know, it's just going to continue to not work for you. You know, luckily my dad did find a job and a career that he he liked and it, and it, it, it afforded him the lifestyle that he liked. And he still likes my mom still was kind of always searching, you know, and sometimes I wonder if like I because I've I've traveled and I've left homes often like I've moved from New York two different times. I moved to Utah. I'm in Miami currently like on the fence about staying in Miami. And like I sometimes wonder, is it like is the move? Searching for more happiness or is like the happiness inside that you're not getting and I always wondered that with my mom Like I always wondered is my mom moving Mm. because she's trying to like find You know the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because she's not getting it in Paris or Palm Beach or Boca or Mexico You never know you know and like if you don't work on yourself Throughout the process. I think you're you're always going to be seeking and always going to be searching and and sometimes I think if I could just hone in on what I'm doing and where I'm at then maybe I can find the thing that does make me feel fulfilled and happy you know whether or not it's here in Miami or it wasn't in Utah or it's gonna be in New York or somewhere else I don't know I just know when I felt my best typically I've I've been taking good care of myself and I've been doing the things I'm supposed to do and then things align themselves whether or not the environment and the setting is right you know that can always change but I I'm I'm able to kind of decipher when it is time to shift
0: and, mm. and make
1: the move, and I think my mom gave me that in a lot of ways because my dad is definitely a, a creature of habit. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. like change; he likes things like the way he likes them. You know, you know, he recently just went on this vacation, and he took like two and a half weeks off, and he never really vacations. And he went out to Europe and all over. And he was like, I don't even know why I came back. And he was like, "Ah, traveling and vacation is not for me. Like, I like my (laughs) my golf. I like my golf course, my golf club, (laughs) my friends, my dinners, you know, and I'm not like that. Like, I like to take trips. I like to travel. I like to kind of force myself out of the out of the comfort zone. And I think the upbringing definitely had had a big part of that because that was something that was part of the existence with my mom was that like, you're constantly kind of operating outside the comfort zone, whether it's going to Paris or, you know, having dinner with people that you've never met before or, you know, things like that. And just really always trying to like expand. Mm-hmm. Having
0: a healthy integration, I'm hearing two polarities and, and for a little bit of over, oversimplification, your dad being the, the steady routine driven. Yeah. Uh, my, my days are predictable. Mom being more adventurous. Yeah. And uh, having both in your toolbox can be really helpful. And I'm wondering, yeah, I've, I've heard you speak many times about your a couple of different formative experiences that that brought you to where you are now. And there was a moment in your response there where you said, when you're taking care of yourself, yeah, then you you're in a place where you can make better decisions, which is yeah. I think is a, is a beautiful foundation to have. It's like I'm um, I'm breathing well, I'm eating well, yeah, my relationship is going well making choices from that place is a, a really more empowered way of being. But I know when you got into being a breathwork instructor, that that wasn't the case. You were dealing with being overweight. Yeah. I believe addiction was you're in the throes of addiction yeah. a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing like, like hard drugs or anything like that. But I was, I was completely addicted to marijuana, food addictions, like back and forth from binge eating to not eating enough you know, those types of things like modern daily things that people kind of take for granted. But when you're doing it for 20 years plus, it's like, oh, wow, you know, this is why you're having trouble with your weight and trouble with your sleeping, because you're getting high after work every day for 12 years and you're binge eating right before bed. You know, no wonder you're waking up, you know, from snoring and, you know, breathing through your mouth Mm. all night. So like those were the things I was I was dealing with. And I was kind of like stuck in this place of like just doing it over and over again. And I was getting into that cycle that I knew. I was like, if I don't make this change, this dramatic change, then it's not going to get better on its own.
0: Was there someone that communicated that to you? What do you, what do you think made it stick? I know that you came across a Wim Hof documentary on Vice, yeah. but yeah. what, was that um, the thing?
1: It was, it was, and it wasn't. I mean, I came across it like first and didn't, it didn't like, sit with me enough like i didn't sit with it enough to think like this is the thing i gotta do i was like damn the guy's wild like that guy is like living his life to the fullest like i need that and i was kind of like put it on the shelf and didn't think about it again um and then my therapist i mean my therapist and i were i mean i've been i saw him today like i i talked to him for the last 12 years weekly and we knew we he and i both knew we're i'm in a rough place like i'm in rough spot i was in this kind of relatively new relationship it was going really well in the beginning then it, it, i was starting to kind of like go back into this depressive state so i knew in, in my in my therapy calls that i needed to figure something out nobody was really putting it on me to figure it out like everyone's kind of like oh well he's got a decent job he lives in miami he's he seems fine it's fine you know it's like everyone's kind of like sleepwalking in life when they're miserable and they're just like kind of going through the motion. So nobody, nobody really, there was no real person that was like, Hey, I can see you're really struggling here. Let's, let's try to figure it out. It's kind of, was kind of, and, and in a lot of ways how it should be, it's kind of all on you to sort of be like, all right, I need to, I need to grab a hold of this thing and figure out what, what's going to change inside of me to make this thing actually stick. I would go to sleep every night high from weed, And I'd wake up the next morning, I'd be in my shower, I'd be taking a shower, I'd be coughing because, you know, I'm smoking these Mm. marijuana cigarettes, you know, these bliffs, whatever you want to call them. And I would be like coughing up blood, I'd be coughing up like mucus. And I'd, Mm. every morning would say, tonight is the night I am not going to smoke when I get home from work. And without fail, every night I got home from work and I would still smoke. And it was not, it was like something I like couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around why this thing wasn't able to shift like why where where am I going wrong where I can't stop doing this thing but I was just doing the same thing over and over again and then that's that's kind of when I was like all right I need to look deeper and maybe go out external and that's when I decided you know I'd had a friend who'd gone to Peru had this incredible experience with ayahuasca incredible but you know transformational because she had started to heal herself before she even went and I could see that and then I saw when she got back and she looked great and she was taking good care of herself and She'd put a lot of things in order in her life, and I don't even think she did more than one or two ceremonies, but she spent a week in the Sacred Valley. And so that was, that was kind of like – you know, that was like a big part of it too because I thought, well, if I can do this thing that she did, maybe it will work for me. And then I spoke to the center, and he told me, he's like, dude, you got to stop weed. You got you to gotta, you gotta cut it out. You got to get your act together before you come here. You can't just think that this is going to save you. And and I was real really nervous on the call. And then I decided, all right, that thing I watched two months ago, the Wim Hof Weistock, like, I'm going to do that. If I can do that every day and find a cold plunge and do that and do the breathing, at least I'll have a breathing practice like he's telling me I need. Because he's like, you need to meditate. You need to breathe. You need to, you know, I didn't even know what breath work was. And this was like hmm. six, seven, seven years ago. You know, wasn't wasn't what it was now. So I, I, I just started from there, started from basically from scratch. Mm.
0: There's so many things I want to get into with you, but it's, I think it's really, my parents have been with the same therapist, each of them for, I think over 30 years, wow. basically the duration of my life. Yeah. And so when, when you said you're with your therapist for 12 years, Yeah,
1: maybe longer too, but not Yeah. Pretty, but definitely not, I mean, maybe it's longer now if I think about it.
0: And I mean, given your given the timeline that you laid out, you've only been a breathwork instructor for a few years, and you only even came across breathwork seven years ago, so there was, it was a time in your life where you still were probably, you were smoking a lot, right, like yeah. you were having a hard time. How how did you find your therapist? I know a lot of people who have such a hard time finding yeah. a good therapist, yeah. and and what do you look, what do you,
1: is it a man that you work with? I work with a man, yeah, he's in New York. Oddly enough, I, I, was in a, I was in a previous relationship and I was going through another rough spell. It's funny, I always go through rough spells around my birthday, which was just my birthday last week and I went through a little bit of a rough spell. I, I told my therapist, I'm like, you know, I should probably make a note every year <laughs> when my birthday comes around that there's a good chance that I, I'm going to have a moment. And And so I was having a rough spell with an ex. And, and I, and I, I got into like this state that we talked about, like the shutdown state Mm. First, I had like a big reaction to something with her. And then I shut down and she was seeing a therapist and her and her therapist concurred in their session that if I didn't go to see somebody that she should end the relationship with me. Mm. And she told me this and she's like, I will find you somebody through my therapist but you need to go see them otherwise. And my grandmother had just passed and she had always wanted me to go see a therapist. And I had gone to see people before, but nothing really stuck. You know, I'd go one-offs. You know, when your, your, your parents get divorced too, they have you go see a therapist as like a kid, which is sort of like a waste of everybody's time. So yeah, so, so my ex introduced me to my therapist. I mean, she didn't, you know, she just sent me his information and basically it felt like an ultimatum to see him, which, you know, for better or worse, it was it was it was the right move for me. And I went to see him. And I remember the first, the first time I broke down in his office, which now I I mean, I would I pay him quadruple to break down, you know, I still have trouble with that emotional release. And I broke down, I got really emotional, I got really upset. I was mourning my grandmother, who was a big part of my life. And I was I was worried about the status of this relationship that was on the rocks and and I was really stressed. I was I was doing my first ever entrepreneurial business with my family, with my sister and brother-in-law, and it was like really taxing in a lot of different ways and and I remember going in and just losing it and being really upset. My mom was going through a really difficult time then and it was just it was just a lot on me and and then we started seeing each other twice a week in the beginning. The first like mm. month was like twice a week. And then I had to scale it back. It was expensive, you know, New York City therapist and I scaled it back to once a week. And I and I stuck with it. And I and I have. Like I it's one thing for better you know for, for all the things that I've stopped started this that the other it's the one thing I can say I've consistently done even breath work like I don't do breath work every single day like I did when I started seven years ago like I will see my therapist though once a week almost throughout the entire year unless I'm traveling or he's traveling or there's a conflict here or there for the most part it is as consistent a thing as I I've done and so so that's how I found us through an X. and actually when I got back from Peru and I was in a really good place, I was really just like humming, like things were aligned. I was feeling really good. I actually almost felt like reaching out to her just to thank her, but I I thought better of it. I never I never did thank her, but in some ways I do thank her for that. You know, the relationship obviously didn't work, and it was for the best that it didn't. But that was one thing. You know, people come into your life for certain reasons, and things align in different ways. That was one thing that like that alignment in that relationship for all the trouble we had and all the issues we had I I'm still grateful for it for this particular reason and other reasons too but that particular thing was was a super big shift in my life
0: mm. so this is again a, a connecting the dots type of thing here I, I'm trying to get my arms around yeah, totally. how how to, how to ask it I think when it comes to you've made a lot of big choices in your life when when to move on in your career a therapist to work with when to go on the hike in mexico when to take ayahuasca i'm i'm wondering how you orient yourself into making choices like how how do you what's uh internally what is your process around making choices in your life
1: yeah they they do take time a lot of times i mean there have been times that they're that the rush, like the 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 climb in Mexico was, was a rash decision. It was something I was like, I need to do this. I kind of want to go. My friend was super pumped about it. I felt like I needed some sort of adventure. Ayahuasca took me a while to make that decision. It took me months to really decide. And then once I decided, I didn't just decide and then go the next week or the next month I took four three four months to prep and do mm-hmm. do the do the things you're supposed to do within a month of going I did four months of it just to like really make sure I was in a good open place to do the work I needed to do down there therapy was was quick but most of the time these these bigger decisions like moving to New York or moving to Miami or leaving leaving New York and going to Utah These are long conversations that now I don't I don't have just with myself I have with my partner like so I will I will have an idea or she'll have an idea and we'll just talk it out and we'll go on walks with the kids we'll be pushing the stroller and I'll bring it up normally and I'll just start talking it out and I'll just start like playing with it and quitting my job you know like that was kind of a rash decision. I decided on the mountain as you heard in that that interview but i also i also didn't just quit right away like i told them and then gave them another 2 3 months to leave the position these shifts these pivots they take they take a little bit of intuition like a feeling inside of me that something has to change like something is not working and then i have to talk about it and i have to kind of like go through scenarios and 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 maybe it's like the side that's like more like my dad like the rational analytical side Mm -hmm. where i'm like all right so if we move back to new york but we don't want to live in the city we want to live here or there and what are we thinking about like what are the things that are important to us what are the things that we need what are the things that our kids need and then you just kind of go through the different ideas and thoughts around it and then you take a trip and then you check out the space so like when we moved to Utah, it, it was fast. It was a quick decision. But my wife and I had been to Utah two times together, and I had been four times alone, or four times in total with her and without her. So like I had been to Salt Lake a bunch of times. Like I had visited family there. I'd I'd done a couple. I'd done a work two workshops there. I thought, you know what? Like this is. And I remember the first time I took my wife. We were leaving L.A. and we were stopping in Utah for four days to hang out and go hiking and to kind of check it out. And I I remember we got off the flight and we're driving from the airport into the city. And I said, look around, like get a feel for it. Is this something you might want to do in a few years? So it's like always like, you know, you plant a Mm -hmm. seed and then you just kind of like, you like, you know, you nourish it, you give it water, you like give it time, you like put it in the sun and you just really let it sort of create, create space in your body and your mind and see if it's the right, it's the right decision because. The thing is, like if you're stuck and you're not changing, you're not moving and everything's stagnant, then it's not gonna grow. So like if I'm in a in a stuck position and things not working, whether it's career-wise, location, relationship-wise, you have to start to play with the ideas of changing. Otherwise, one day you're just gonna pop and you're just mm-hmm. gonna say, I can't fucking be in this relationship, I can't be in this job. I can't fucking live in this apartment anymore and you just like totally like I would think you totally break down and you just like quit your job and everything listen I've been there too I've been in a bad relationship living with an ex at a job that I felt underappreciated undervalued in an apartment I didn't want to live anymore and I literally quit the job broke up with the ex and left the apartment all within a month and it was like fast but I didn't have a plan. I didn't set anything up afterwards. So I basically landed on my face and had to like regroup from there. But sometimes that's okay too. Like sometimes you mm. need to get out of the situation so, so desperately that like maybe it's okay to like fall and then figure it out from like square one, you know, as opposed to like making a lateral move where like, Oh, well, I left the job I hated for another job that kind of sucks too. And now Mm -hmm. I'm stuck at this other job or I left my ex for another girl, but I'm not really taking time for myself to figure out what the best step is for me. You know, I always think if you end a relationship or you're stopping a relationship to like take that space afterwards to like be lonely, to feel the sadness, Mm -hmm. to like be In your feelings and and it sucks like it sucks trust me i i'm i've been there and 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 i have friends and family that go through it still and it's it's a tough period but if you jump into the next thing too fast you're never really recovering and getting back to that good place that feels like okay i'm gonna make it everything's gonna be fine you know you don't always want to just like change one thing for the next without taking time to process what had already happened Mm.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your full self already with me, man. Even before yeah. we jumped on here, it, you said you're an open book, and and I certainly experience you that way. And I, I think I that, that the power of story and and the power of you sharing yourself is I feel more permission to be all of myself. And and anyone yeah. that's tuned in here, I'm sure you know a lot of these questions I'm asking because they're they're helpful for me. Like I yeah. I get stuck with choices in my life, and I really? love hearing how other people make choices and how yeah. intuition shows up for you and. Yeah, I think all of us relate. We, we go through transitions in our life, and and it's hard to know when when is it the time do I keep marching on, or yeah. is now a time to to sever it. And y- your story has lots of different examples of yeah uh, choices that that in a lot of ways served you. So
1: yeah, and honestly, sometimes I think about it too, like in a way where I think like, and I ask my clients this a lot, where I ask them I was like, if you were like given a like a diagnosis. Of like one year you know it's like would you stay in this job would you stay in this thing most it's almost always no it's almost Mm -hmm. always like definitively emphatically F no like I'm out and I'm like all right well I'm not telling you to live your life with that in mind but if you lived your life a little bit closer to that you think you're gonna stay in this job for five six years you think you're gonna do this thing that you don't like to do just because your parents said it was a good idea that you had this setup up and this situation. So it's tough. You know, it's tough. You're kind of going against the grain and you're going against society and, and all these things. And listen, I'm on the other side, not the other side of it now, but I'm playing on the other side of the fence where like, I'm doing my own thing and it's feast or famine. There's some months where it's like, amazing and i'm i'm killing it and things are going great and all the doors are open and then there's other times where the doors feel closed clients are gone you know you're not hearing from people and you're kind of like oh man like this is this is a rough little stretch we're in right now like like i'm gonna have to figure out how to navigate here and you start to kind of like second guess things. so you have to you have to almost like be okay with being in that space from time to time and that's that's I think that's the rub when you're when you're an entrepreneur and you kind of go mm-hmm. against the system of like, well, I'm not going to have the job with the full benefits, the 401k, all these things. Like I have to create all that myself, but that's reliant on, you know, you having an offering or a service or being of service in a way that, that you can afford these things. So it's, it's definitely challenging and it's not something you should decide on quickly. It takes mm-hmm. time, you know, and, and I didn't, I did both for a long time. I did the nine to five. And I also was doing workshops part time just to try to like, put my foot in the water and see what that felt like and felt like that was the right thing for me. And and the only reason or the main reason why I quit when I did the nine to five is because of that, that near death experience where I, I pushed myself to like a physical limit. And I was on this mountain, I just thought, there's no way I could like go back to my life in New York and go back to this job and feel like I'm doing what I should be doing and I'm pushing myself the way I should be pushing myself. Could you share that full story? It's a powerful yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, I was a recently certified Wim Hof instructor. I got certified with a big group of people. One of the guys I got certified, his name is Juan Pablo, He's a, the, he was the first Mexican certified instructor and he wanted to do this challenge of climbing the three highest mountains in Mexico. Back to back, like within a few weeks of each other. And he wanted to do it Wim Hof style, which is without a shirt on, you know, it's like it's hard enough to climb these mountains. But then on top of that, to, to go no shirt, it's like a whole nother endeavor. And he posted in like a Facebook group or in a WhatsApp group, like, hey, I'm going to climb these mountains. Anybody who wants to join one of the expeditions, hit me up. And like, I always wanted to go hang out with him in Mexico City anyway. You know, my mom's from Mexico. I always felt like a kinship with him. And I was like, all right, you know what? I hit him up. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm down. Like, I got this great tech job. I can take vacations. I can pay for trips. Like, yeah, I'll come. I'll join. Just send me the list of what I need. I'll come. I just climb Mount Hood in Oregon. Easy. No problem. He's like, cool. Well, the one I think you should come and do is is Pico de Orizaba. I'm like, awesome. Never heard of it. Great. And it turns out it's the third tallest mountain in North America. It's Denali. And, and I never remember the second mountain, but this is the third and he said this crazy list of stuff things i've never even heard of i've never heard of crampons i never heard of all the gear all the things i was just like uh which ones of these things do i like actually need because i didn't have any of this stuff and he's like no you dude you need all of it like this is a serious mountain and he's like you need to start to like train i was like well, what are you doing to train i'm like i live at sea C- i live in new york I live at sea C- level he's like well could do like Pilates reformer. You can do all these things. I didn't do any of it. I, I ended up taking workout classes, spin classes. I was doing this high altitude training program with my friend where I was wearing this mask that was depleting the oxygen levels in the mask. And I was breathing like depleted oxygen and, and trying to like, you know, hack it. There's no hacking it though. Anyway, so I get to Mexico. We do four, three, four days in Mexico City, which Mexico City is already at like eight, 9,000 feet, I think, of elevation. I'm gassed just walking around the city. I'm climbing steps. I'm out of breath. I'm doing other stuff. I'm out of breath. I'm like starting kind of like the voices already getting in my head like, hey, this is going to be harder than you think. And we end up getting to the mountain. It was me, Juan Pablo, another guy who got certified named Jimmy's. And another guy named MA who is another kind of like these, all these Mexican guys are like, like amazing athletes and amazing people like Emma is like, you know, he runs ultra marathons and like he climbs mountains for fun, like, like no problem. And, and Yumi's is a really fit young guy, Venezuelan, but, you know, got nationalized in Mexico and he's a really just great guy, but he's super fit. He goes running in earth runners through the forest in Mexico city and like can run miles and miles and miles and Juan Pablo's you know he's in really good shape too he's like alpine skier and mountain biker and 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 everyone's climbed these two mountains leading up to this one so they're they're geared this was the third one this was like the last one they were going to do because it was the tallest we had two guides that were going to help us along the way and then we did we did a night two nights on the mountain the second night we woke up around midnight or 12:30 and then we started our ascent in the middle of the night with moonlight and headlamps pitch black and the mountains, treacherous. You know, it, it, there was, there was memorials for people that had died there not long ago. One of our guides said that he was going up with a bunch of French guys and he told them that we had to stop. We had to go back because the weather turned and they refused and they died. And they actually, had, he was telling us a story about carrying the bodies down. You know, we we're staying in this like little, like tin, tin can cabin, in the middle of the mountain, sleeping at night, but not sleeping because like, you know, the altitude's crazy and you're getting headaches and you're just like, like, what am I doing, you know? And we took like, kind of like a exploratory walk the day of just to kind of get a feel for what it's like to climb up. And there's these big steps that they created at the beginning of the ascent. And the steps are big, they're tall. So you're like taking these big steps up and then they stop. And then you're walking up a dirt path and you got to kind of climb and jump and you're using poles and, all this gear and so we woke up at midnight and we started at 1230 a.m. and Juan Pablo was going shirtless and he was flying I mean, he was going so fast because uh, he was shirtless and it's cold and I mean you, it, it's windy it's he needs to move when your body temp drops you have to move and they're going really fast and they're all in much better shape than I am and the altitude's not affecting them and I know this because M.A who's like, like a superhero Mexican. He's singing as we're ascending. He's singing (laughs) Frank Sinatra. He's singing Mexican songs, like nothing like, (laughs) like, like no breathlessness, no nothing. I'm huffing and puffing. I'm trying to breathe through my nose and like do all the breathing shit that I thought was gonna help me. None of it was really working. (laughs) Uh, I was feeling the intensity as we kept getting higher and higher. Something else that was happening. I was getting these cramps in my groin, which I'd never gotten a cramp in my groin. Mm. I got it on one side, then I got on the other side. I'm breathing hard and heavy. The guide, Kato, this woman, like my angel on the mountain, told me we have to like stop. You gotta slow down. You're going too fast. Like she's trying to tell me, like, chill out. Don't have to stay with the group. I'm like, No, no, you know, like ego. Stay with the group, stay with the group. And then finally I was like, Go ahead, we'll meet up with you. And we go slow. I'm breathing. She's motivating me. She's telling me like Think about this, think about that, trying to get me pumped up. I'm, I'm pushing. And in my head, I'm thinking, how am I going to get down? Like, this is really hard climbing up. How the fuck am I going to get down? I am exhausted. How am I going to get down? And we just kept going. Like, I just kept going. I just kept pushing. I just kept going, going, going. Like, I mean, within an hour of doing it, I was like, I'm toast. I'm exhausted. And I And I went well beyond that. And I went further than I physically thought I could and the sun still wasn't out it was still dark and we just kept climbing up and up and up and you look over and you can kind of see down but it's like you can't see it's just like a black abyss down and it was just crazy and i could see their headlamps further up and i could still hear them talking Ma singing i mean it was nuts and then we finally get to the glacier which i didn't i mean i can't even believe still i got to that height because that's the height of like I forget exactly what the height is. I forget there's a mountain in France. I think it's Mont Blanc. That's that, That's like the height of, of the glacier. And I mean, you're at like 16,000, 17,000 feet. And i never been that high. And, and, and now is the time that you have to get the crampons on. So these are these spikes that you strap onto your hiking boots. My feet mm. were killing me. I had cramps. I had sweat through my Under Armour, like dry fit t-shirt. So my chest was wet. It was cold. It was windy. So like my body was getting really cold. I was shivering. I was shaking. I don't even know what. And I'm trying to put my crampons on, which I wasn't even good at when we were at normal levels. And I wasn't exhausted and I'm getting my crampons on and, and in order for us to go through the glacier, you have to go with your, your team. So like Juan Pablo and Yumi's were going to go with their guide and I was going to go with Kado and Emma as a team of three, cause you got to tie yourselves to each other and you got to go with three people. Cause the snow and the ice could be all the way up to your hips or higher. Mm. And you can't, you can get lost in there and you fucking gone, you know? I mean, it's dark, it's dark still sun's just starting to come up and it's like four or five hours. We're ascending, something like that. Three hours maybe. And I mean, you know, you're seeing the sun come up I mean, it looks like you're on another planet. It doesn't look like earth. You know, there's no life up there. There's no trees. Mm. There's no plants. There's no birds. There's nothing. It's just rock, ice, and wind, and the sky and the clouds. And and yeah, Kato called it. She's like, She's like, you can't go. She's like, you can't go through the glacier. Like, glacier is like the hardest part, in some ways. She's like, you, we got to go back. And I felt awful because Emma, who's singing Frank Sinatra, was fine. <laughs> like, no <laughs> issue. But he couldn't. He couldn't go through unless we were in a team of three. So we basically had to tell him like, Hey dude, you can't get to the top this time, you're going to have to come back a different time and go to the top. Mm. And that sucked. You know, I was not just, listen, if it was just me to not go up to the top, fine, I'll hang out here. And she's like, no, we got to get you back down to like a comfortable elevation. You can't be at this high altitude. So we got to get you back down. And, and that's what they did. They, they walked down with me. I fell maybe a dozen times on my ass going down like Mm. every few steps slip fall hit you know it was rough it was really rough and it was humbling in a way that I had never experienced because one I couldn't do it two I thought I was going to do it three I was letting this guy down who I I really liked I really respected I knew he could do it he was fine there was a lot of things it was a lot of things and I learned a lot on that on that descend and just like and felt a lot, and just was like really like kind of emotional, and just like in 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 a in a interesting place, like really grateful that I was able to like do this, but also like really embarrassed. I was like, hey, you didn't you didn't do it. You and I was like in my head, I'm like, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna climb this mountain. Never, I haven't done it yet, but yeah, it was it was it was interesting. But then I I like came to this conclusion as well. I was like, you know, like you're like living this life that's just not working for you you know, mm-hmm. and you need to start to figure out something else in your, in your existence. Like you're doing this other thing you like, maybe that's the thing you should be doing now. So yeah, it didn't like, like completely come to that conclusion on the mountain, but like by the time we got back to Mexico city and I hung out for a couple of days and then I went back to New York. And by that time, I, the decision was made. Like I, I, by the time I landed back in JFK and got back to my apartment in Chelsea and I was in bed with my you know now wife and I'm lying there and I'm like, I'm done. Like I'm done. And mm-hmm. and yes, that was that was it. And the next day I told I told the VP of sales that I was gonna give him my notice. So yeah, it was interesting how how things changed for me on that that trip.
0: Yeah. I mean the the thought experiment of if you knew you were gonna die in a year, how would you live your life differently or yeah. would you still do this job? That's it's a really powerful question. And yeah. actually going through an experience like that, it it becomes even realer, right? Like, you, you actually were physically confronted yeah. with your mortality there.
1: Totally. totally. And I th- I was – I had – the voices in my head were saying, you were going to die. Like, that was what mm-hmm. the voice was saying. Like, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get out of this. How are you going to get down? You're not going to get down. And, like, this guy, this guide would just tell me about all these French dudes dying on here. And, like, I saw memorials on the mountain where we were staying. Like, I was like, you're not going to make it. And that mm-hmm. – reality was like, that was starting to settle in. And I was like, I had to fight, I had to fight that and I had to push and I and I, I mean, as hard as it was to not to not get to the top, like getting to the glacier, I hang my hat on that now like that to me was like, that was enough, you know, that was, that was hard enough. And I pushed myself to the limit to get there. And I think having having yourself at that place at that precipice, You're just like, well, I'm not going to do anything that I don't fucking want to do anymore. Part of me thinks in life, like when I need to like get back to like where I want to be physically, mentally, emotionally, like kind of got to push myself into that zone. It was the same with Hmm. like I had to like go way outside the, the comfort zone of my house, my apartment, my life, all the things go deep into the jungle and do this thing that was scaring me to death. And then once I went there and I realized, like, oh, I can do this. Like, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm out of it a different person. Now I'm, like, now as a father and as a partner and, you know, running this business and everything, I, I sometimes wonder, do I need to go on these journeys, these, like, these situations to, to get the best out of myself? Or is it something that I can manufacture in my own home like on some Mm. level i feel like i should be able to i should be able to like muster the discipline the self-control the routine whatever you want to call it to like get to the place where i should be at and how i should feel or do i need to like force myself to the place to like to like the crazy zone of like a mountain or a jungle Uh or a physical act running a marathon or you know i mean listen i was going to jujitsu and a lot of ways, that was like a, a micro dose of that intensity. I was pushing myself every day in this practice where I was trying not to get strangled, you know, mm. and I didn't actually ever think I was going to die, but your body's fighting in a way that's so intense that you're like mimicking the adrenaline release of that experience. So that was a really good practice that I picked up in, in, in Salt Lake and it kept kept me grounded in some way. And I do think I do think a lot of the issues that people are dealing with is they're not getting that like dose of fear, adrenaline and excitement in their regular life. So they're wondering what the fuck's wrong with me? Why don't I have mm-hmm. this sensation of like happiness or joy? And it's like, well, cause you're not, you're not pushing yourself in some way. You're not forcing this thing out. That's supposed to come mm-hmm. out. Like as humans, like I watch my kids and I just see the way they want to play and what they want to do and how they want to move and all these things. And I'm just like the one, when they're happiest is like when they're out, doing all those things when my son is one and a half and he's like playing in dirty water and like throwing it all <laughs> over himself and like really like making a mess in mud and you know my daughter and I are walking on the beach path and it's raining and it's windy and we're walking barefoot and we're walking on rocks and we're walking on in puddles and and doing something like that like that's when they feel and they look their best and we're just we're just not doing that enough and I'm me too like I'm not I'm not saying I figured it out all the way I'm obviously still in this, in this struggle and still working through things and still figuring things out. But I know I feel my most alive when I'm pushing myself and I have to create a discipline mm. to like get myself to the place that I know the good stuff happens, but the good stuff doesn't happen unless you like force yourself to that zone, to that place. You know, My dad and I often talk about, he talks about like the bubble, the comfort, like the comfort zone, his bubble of, you know, his happy bubble, his happy place. And I've learned for me, my happy place isn't necessarily in the bubble. Like it can be, and the bubble can be great, but I have to do work outside the bubble and I have to push myself outside of the bubble and I have to force myself to get out of like whatever I'm dealing with outside the bubble. Then I can go back in the bubble and I can chill out. But the bubble's not where I'm going to learn about myself and I'm going to like figure out these things that I need to learn about myself. It's outside, it's, you know, on a hard run or in a jiu-jitsu studio or on a mountain or doing whatever it is, that's where I'm going to actually figure out more about myself and I'm going to be happier in the bubble once I get that work done outside of it.
0: There's there's so many things to reflect on from what you shared there, but it, one of them I think is what are we modeling for our children? Like I, I'm a new father. my My son is 10 weeks old. I think as parents, I know for our parents generation Avi so for our parents not me and you. Yeah. I think there was a lot of conditioning around modeling stability and safety and, yeah. and not taking chances. And that th- there's some beauty to that and there's also some some drawbacks to that. So I think it's beautiful that you're modeling for your kids that there's a risk to doing the safe thing too. But there's yeah. there's major risk to not taking these chances as well. Yeah. And and your kids in, in the way that they play and and run through the mud and and play with the with the mud like that's a that's a beautiful thing. And so I I'm always wrestling with the like how do I model stability and and appreciate the bubble and where where are the places in my life that I'm stepping outside the bubble? I think that's those are beautiful questions to be wrestling yeah. with. And and I think one of the ways that we can easily manufacture, or maybe not easily, but one of the ways that we can push out of our comfort zone is exactly the vocation that you're in now, the line of work that you're in. It's with the breath. Yeah. And so you talked a little bit about stress. I want to get into more than just the breath because there's there's lots of different things that you bring into your work that help people with being outside of their bubble and being back within their bubble. But the breath is a really powerful one and I've never explicitly focused a a full conversation on this podcast about the breath, but it's so important. It's so foundational. We all do it. Yeah. Every single person. And so I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about, you know, when you took the leap and you were at the time you're a Wim Hof instructor, but I experienced you to be like, you're studied in the oxygen advantage and art of breath. And so yeah. when, when someone is coming to you for support with breath work or with the breath, like what, where do you begin with that person?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I try to always get on a call and talk to them first off, because you'll have a lot of people inquire over email, like, Hey, I want to do breathing sessions with you. What's the cost? And it doesn't, doesn't make sense for us to even have that conversation. We don't know if we're a good mm-hmm. fit or a good match. I don't also know what you're interested in. Like what about – like are you interested just in Wim Hof breathing? Are you anxious? All these details. So it always starts with like a consultation or or an understanding of where this person is looking to grow from. And then we get into that. Like we get on a call and and I find out this person's not sleeping, having trouble eating, no appetite, wants to perform better at work, at home, whatever the thing is. And then – They'll ask like I'll let them ask me whatever they want to ask me, and we'll go through what a session looks like, and I'll I'll walk them through it. It's about an hour long, and we start with a little bit of a check in. You tell me what's going on, how you slept, how you're feeling, what's what's been going on in your routine right now, and then from there I'll guide you in breath work, um, and and that's typically how it starts. and And for me to to get the most out of the session for for the client for the person. I kind of want to know exactly what they're what they're looking to gain what they want how they want to how do they want to improve and if there's anything i can do on my end that's what i'm there for you know whether it is a a hard conversation about your daily routine that's not working for you you know a lot of times Hmm. i do have these conversations it it ends up becoming like hey like you're living in this place it doesn't seem like it's working for you like would it, what would it look like if you were to leave this place like what would it look like if you were to leave your job what would it look like if you were to stop talking to your ex that you keep talking to you keep getting back into this stress because like I'll have clients that I'll see regularly and it's like a weekly maintenance call and we're getting into breath work and they're going deep and you know we're able to really work through stuff then I have a, most of my clients will see me for like four or five weeks straight'll we'll have a good st- string of sessions and then I won't see him for a few weeks or a month or two months and then they'll hit me up out of the blue. Hey, Avi, really anxious, really stressed out. This stuff that's happening in the world is is stressing me out da, 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 da. and we'll get on a call and we'll do a session. No problem. Like We'll do a session tomorrow, the next day, Whenever. And then I'll find out like, oh, you know, I'm also like I'm back with my ex or we're talking again, or mm. or you know, I'm 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 still taking shit from my boss and my boss is up my ass and I'm I'm miserable at this job and it's going on three years now. And so it's like part of it is that too. Like I'm not I'm not trying to portray myself as a therapist. I'm just trying to listen mm-hmm. and hear what the person's telling me. And if there's a blockage in what they're doing, or there's something that's not correct or it's not working for them, then how about we just talk about what it would look like to not do the thing anymore? So Mm -hmm. at least we can start to entertain that idea. And then maybe when we go into our breathing session, maybe you access a different part of your brain that's not like the part that's always worrying and always stressed out. It's another neural pathway to creativity, to compassion for yourself, to love to something else, something else. Cause this part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex is always running and it's always telling you, you didn't do this. You gotta send this email. Did you send out that calendar invite? Why don't you get this done? Still gotta get that done. And, or what did you do earlier today? It's just always on a loop. Cause <laughs> if you get into a breathwork practice and you're being guided and someone's telling you how to breathe and showing you how to slow down your thoughts and slow down your breathing then all of a sudden that's where maybe you start to have these like moments of awareness and moments of like, oh wow. I should be doing this breathing stuff more. I should be taking better care of myself. I should be doing the thing I you know I want to do in my life. Or I had this really creative idea, like that business that I wanted to do six years ago. I should get back to that. You know, whatever hmm. it is, and like give someone a safe space to like play outside the lines, to feel like they don't have to like. Be a certain way in the session it doesn't have to always look a certain way it doesn't always have to feel a certain way if they want to flirt with the idea of leaving their job or moving out of somewhere to somewhere else then like let's have those conversations because like my goal is all, all the people I work with are at their happiest that they're feeling the best in what mm-hmm. they do and you know how they experience life and in their relationships and if I can help them achieve that or at least get to a place where they feel more confident to go for the things they want to do then that's that's kind of what it's all about
0: man one of one of my biggest frustrations with the medical system is that if you if for most doctors I don't want to speak for every doctor but a, a lot of encounters I've had there is zero check-in around like what else is going on in your yeah. life other than the presenting thing that you're here for
1: yeah right totally.
0: And it's so powerful that you're even something like that. Just a check in, like what else is happening in your life? How are you sleeping? What are you eating? What yeah. are your relationships like? It can yeah. it gives so much information. And uh, I think with breathwork, it's easy to get into just the mechanics. I, I have felt the temptation to just get into the mechanics with you, yeah. And to talk about your nervous system yeah, and to talk good. about what happens in your body, and and all of that's really important. But if you add the layer of well, what's the context that you're showing up in right it feels like it supercharges everything
1: yeah so and, on, and another layer to that is part of and like probably at the crux of 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 what i try to achieve or what i'm trying to do with whoever i'm working with whether it's a group or a private session is i want them to feel comfortable safe and mm-hmm. like open to talk to feel to whatever so that way when we're doing the breathing they, they can go wherever they need to go. And it's not for them to have some big emotional release or anything like that. Listen, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, that's fine too. The goal is that they feel like they can they can experience and feel whatever they need to feel. And whatever mm-hmm. comes up, comes up. And that space is important for me. And, and that's something I reiterate, mm-hmm. especially with new people, because the first session can be awkward. You know, It's like, oh, hi, I'm a stranger you've never really met before. I'm going to ask you to lie down or sit down and close your eyes and now I'm going to tell you how to breathe and I'm going to tell you why you're not, you know, whatever. And, and it's it can be awkward. So to try to create as much comfort and ease and safety in that space is, is really the most important thing that I'm trying to do. And then from there, hey, if we can have some mini breakthroughs or major breakthroughs, great. It's not necessarily going to happen every session, but it might. It might happen once in a while. It might, you know, and – it's it's interesting to to create that that space for people just to feel as comfortable and vulnerable as they need to feel and listen it doesn't not everyone wants to do that i mean i had some clients i would see every day or five days four or five days a week and i couldn't get an inch out of them to tell me mm. what's going on ever ever mm. and you you know you just you just don't know and to bring back to what you said about doctors you know it's something my dad i think i always I was always really and am really proud he has really excellent bedside manner and he's a really you know caring compassionate doctor and and I know obviously that's not always the case it's like anything it's like there's teachers that are like that and all different types of things but in the medical field it can be tough to find that that size that style of of physician or even I mean nurses for the most part I've found I've always like have a caring side though I've had some bad experiences there too but um the thing and and something from the beginning, what you asked me about the dinner conversation, my dad, when when we would talk about the ER, it wasn't always like did somebody die today, but there was always something that was part of the conversation was he would always complain, and I hope nobody from his business sees this, but he always complained <laughs> about the hospital system, you know, the system mm-hmm. of medicine and how there's a quick turnover, you know, incentive, and if it's not. Getting people turned over fast enough, and the patients aren't moving in and out of the ER fast enough, then there's penalties. And there's a lot of stress and pressure put on physicians and nurses to get people through faster because hmm. it is a business. And it's not to disparage that business, but it is, in fact, a business. And the more people they see, the better business is. So. That's what it is. And, and it's not to say, listen, I'm also in business where like, I want to see a lot of clients and have a lot of people come do breath work with me. But like on some level, like I want my clients, if they feel like we've done enough work together and we're like 15 sessions in or we're five sessions in and we've achieved what we were trying to achieve, then by all means, go out and do your thing. Like the stress, the anxiety has gone, no more panic attacks, I'm feeling better about things. Great. Then go on and do your thing. If you need me again, hit me up. I'll be around. But like that's the goal is that like people are empowered and they feel connected to their breath and they feel like they have more autonomy in their nervous system and how they feel and how they think and what they do. So like that's that's a goal. Like I I think that's that's what you want is for people to be able to do these things on their own and learn learn how to take care of themselves.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful aspiration. When I started my coaching business, it was the same thing. uh, Ultimately, my goal is that I kind of render myself unnecessary by the end of this thing, that you've you've built the practices, the habits to make this a lifestyle, right? To to make it a way of being in your own life. So I think it's a beautiful wish. And yeah, I'm wondering if we could get a little bit into... Yeah. Well, I have another reflection, actually. I have another reflection because I think this is this really deepens the work that you're doing. I even noticed, as you said, that you work to it it matters to you a lot to create comfort and ease and safety. That invited me to take a deep breath. I noticed in that moment, I took a deep breath. And so having that container, it already invites in a level of more connection to self. Yeah. Right. So I think that's, it's really beautiful. And, and now I'm wondering if we can get into, let's just say, I mean, this is true for everyone. Some of the times it's certainly true for me. Some of the time is that like this morning, for example, I was sharing with you, I, I felt shut down. I was disengaged. I probably wasn't connected to my breath at all. And so if we, if I were to come into a session with you and it's like, you know, I'm in a fight with my partner, yeah. I'm a little bit stressed at work right now. Just sharing this with you like there's some level of connection that's happening and I I feel more kind of dropping into my body and maybe a little bit more connected to my breath. So, what are what are some options that someone would have or that I would have? I'm feeling anxious. Like how would you guide me to be connected to my breath in that moment?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I would first I would ask, i going to ask you what's going on. Wh- wh- why are you feeling shut down? You know, I try to get at least, at least a little bit of a verbal understanding. Like we talked about the check-ins really important from there. I might even just have you do like a light stretch, like stretching your arms above your head and just kind of like opening up and like a wow. lot of tension is held up here in the jaw and the shoulders and the neck. So like sometimes getting someone to just move their body a little bit because You know, Mm. if you look at someone in a really stressed, tense state, typically their shoulders are up, their hands might be clenched, they might be clenching their jaw. So, like, just Mm. to kind of create a little bit of blood flow and circulation there is helpful. So, from there, from like a light, mild stretch, I would ask you to just check in on your breathing right now before we get into like Mm. conscious breathing or me guiding you or telling you to breathe in a certain way. Notice how you're breathing on your own without any sort of guidance. And Mm -hmm. maybe that starts with you actually noticing your breathing. Maybe you're still in your head and you're still thinking about the fight you had or whatever, whatever. But what's happening in that moment is I'm watching your breathing. And I'm seeing where your breathing is at this default level, at this baseline level of like, we're getting started. I haven't told them to do one exercise yet. And I get to see exactly how you're breathing when you're in this mode. So from there, I would have you... Most of the time when I work with people and I have them do this exercise, the majority of people, when we're getting started, are breathing in a really tight, constricted way. It's a bit shallow. Sometimes it's in their chest. Sometimes it's in their belly, but it's like very mild. It's a very light breath. And it's not necessarily done in a way that's calming. I'd say it's done in a way that like is stuck. It doesn't feel full and expansive and connected. It feels like I'm just like holding on right here. So then I would invite that person to start to take a deeper, fuller breath. And if I still see the physical tension that like we started with, because they might just go right back to this. I'll say, all right, Mike, go all the way in through the nose, pull it all the way in. Big exhale, let it go through the mouth. (sighs) Ah. And that right there sometimes is enough to just release a little bit, a little bit of the pressure. And then from there, I'd say, all right, let's do it again. Nice and easy, nice and full, all the way in through the nose. And at this point, they've taken two full nasal inhales. So on some level, there is a physiological shift that's happening. Their heartbeat might start to even slow down here. Their blood pressure might start to slow down. I've worn pulse oximeters while I'm doing this. So I've seen heart rate change within a couple breaths. Hmm. You can start to feel the tension release a little bit. You can start to feel the blood flow change. So then from there, I'd ask them to release it and let it go however they felt comfortable doing. Most of the time, if we're just getting started working together, they're gonna exhale through the mouth because that's what we've been taught is nose in, mouth out. I'll let them do that two or three times. And then the third or fourth time, I will say, all right, Mike, now big, slow inhale, pull it all the way in through the nose. And this time when you release it, Don't push it out of the mouth. Let it out through the nose. And then I'll start to get an inkling more on how they're breathing and what I'm seeing. Are they breathing fast? Is it choppy? Is it frenetic? Does it feel like they have to force this air out, this carbon dioxide out of their nose because it's making them stressed? They're already getting anxious because I'm having them slow down their breath. And then from there, the last couple breaths because I'll – normally this is like a six, seven breath exercise. The last two, I'll have them – almost exaggerate the length of it and go as slow as possible like really slow the exhale down really slow the inhale down make it as slow and as mild as possible and that will give me a lot a lot of information that will show me a lot not just about Mm. what what they do as breathers but also like like how much how much stress do they have in their system right now because if you're stressed and that could be running out on the beach that could be exercising that could be fighting with your partner that could be doing that stress is a lot of different things it's not just one thing when you're really really intensely stressed slowing down your breathing is really hard it's really hard it's like me on that mountain when i was dying and Uh i was like couldn't catch my breath if you had asked me to inhale for five seconds exhale for five seconds it was not happening i would have had to have taken 10 minutes to to sit down and fully relax and let go and maybe that's what i should have done It takes a lot when your body is maxed out and you're trying to get offload all that carbon dioxide and your body's like searching for oxygen. And when you're in an exacerbated stress state, that's what you feel in your system. Your body feels that tension and you can see it in someone. Like I start sessions and I I can see pretty quickly if someone's really feeling anxious just by those first six, seven breaths. And then Mm -hmm. I'll have them do an exhale hold. And, and typically that, that will be enough for me to see, but then also enough for them to lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, get into maybe a, a slightly more mild state, slightly more calm state, and then we can start to build from there. That's kind of like the building first building block of a session that I lead typically. And then it changes. I, I do different things, but a lot of times, especially with new people, that's how I start because it, 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 gives, it gives a lot of information, which is really helpful.
0: Mm, yeah. Thanks so much for walking us through that. I
1: think there's a, there's a couple of
0: examples that I think specifically they're, they're present in my life. And I, I really believe that the deeply personal is universal. So let's just say, I mean, this is true for me. So I'm not, I, we don't need to make a hypothetical. I get really nervous before presenting in front of a large yeah. group.
1: Yeah. I've seen you do a lot of talking on public speaking.
0: That's right. And I think one of the reasons I'm so qualified to do it is because most of my life, I have clenched up in every single yeah. way that you're talking and felt like so hyper aroused yeah. that it was impossible to give the, pre- the presentation, the talk, yeah. lead the meeting, whatever it was. But for memorizing it and getting through it, it felt like an out-of-body blackout yeah. type <laughs> yeah, of experience.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. So, i there.
0: Oh, yeah? Uh, do, do you get nervous public
1: speaking? Not as much anymore, but I definitely, I definitely used to get really nervous. Now, maybe I—I I mean, I have a trick. I have a little like I. The trick, the trick is easier, easier done when I'm talking about breathing. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking in front of a big group and I'm giving a presentation, I've given presentations in front of rooms of a hundred people, sixty people, forty people, CEOs busy New Yorkers, you know, professional athletes. Like I've been in front of people that are intimidating. Even one of the most intimidating rooms I was in was when I was getting certified in Wim Hof Method and they made us present in front of the group and talk about our story. And it was a really challenging mm. thing. You have people there that have talking about being a Navy SEAL or someone dealing with depression and on the verge of suicide and like all these really intense stories. They're like, all right, I'll be tell your story now about... You know, being a fat kid who was smoking too much weed and needed to go to Peru to figure shit out, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, you really need to like, you need to like hone in, but I have the whole room do the six breaths and I do it with them. I say, all right, guys, before I start, I just want to do a quick exercise and we're all going to take a nice full inhale in through the nose and an easy exhale out. And I will literally do it with them as much as I can within the second or third breath I relax and then all of a sudden the mood in the room changes everyone calms down and I will go forth and do my thing. There are instances where I can't I can't do the exercise or the exercise isn't isn't it's not the right space for it to do as I'm doing my public speaking so I will do exercises before I I kind of get on stage and I will be very mindful of how I'm breathing. And a lot of times when you're public speaking you're nervous you tend to talk faster mm-hmm. you tend to kind of speed up and in actuality what you should be doing is slowing down and actually i guided i one of my clients did a ted talk he was really nervous for the ted talk you know he's training really hard we we're doing ton of breathing sessions and i just kept telling him, was like dude slow down like when you do it like i'm not teaching i'm not i wasn't working with him on what he was going to say or anything i was like i'm just working on your breathing like you think you're going too slow, like you're not. You can slow down, you can take pauses, you can take beats, you can take breaths. That's, there's no issue with public speaking and talking at a slower pace and thinking about what you're saying and taking breaths as you do it. Because what happens is you stop breathing and you just talk, 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 talk. And what do you do when you talk? You're exhaling too and you're like not taking air in. So then what happens is you get out of breath and then you... Do, you like take this big like I've done it in an interview one time it was so embarrassing i remember i was in an interview and I, I kept talking i was i was too caffeinated i was too nervous i was too worked up i felt underqualified for the job i really wanted to work for this company and i and i talked too much and i was clearly nervous and and i didn't get the job and I and I actually I did quite well interviewing normally like I normally there's something I've been good in pressure situations even before I became a breathing coach for the most part of my life I have a pretty good track record of, of performing decently well whether it was in sports or other things in life you know I remember my my sister and brother in law got married and I did the wedding speech in front of like 120 people maybe 150 I don't remember maybe it was 100 people it felt like a thousand and you know it's mm-hmm. friends family. Everyone, people from all over the world, were there, and it was a big room, and it was at a really nice place. And nobody else did a speech. Maybe my dad did, but I don't even remember. And I did a speech, and I remember I'd written something out, like you said, memorize. I had something written. And I was starting to talk from the written thing, and I was like, "This isn't working. I'm losing everyone." And mm-hmm. I felt it. I, you can, you know, you know when you're doing a yeah. speech. Like I, I do a lot of public speaking now, and I know when they're engaged and when they're not and i knew mm. that when i was doing the, the wedding speech they're not engaged so i literally crumpled up what i had to say on the ball and i threw it down and i just started talking from the heart and the speech went great it was a, it was a, it was a really great you know it was an honest funny speech and that was that was mm. something i learned then is like and that's what i do now like when i do a workshop i do a group experience it's not i'm not there's no powerpoint There's, I take notes before, like maybe the day or two before I'll write down some thoughts, things I want to maybe hit on, not mandatory, just ideas that might be helpful. And then I just go in and I, and I just speak from the heart and I just let it fly. And I feel like if I'm losing the group in a workshop, then I have them do a breathing exercise. I'll have them Mm. do something active. I'll have them just do something else, switch it up, switch up the energy, switch, switch up the mode, have them do something, stop talking. I'm boring them. I'm boring myself. So let's just do something else. So that's, You have to kind of read the room and read the energy. And if you're in a high high sympathetic, high stress state and you're not able to do that because you're having this out-of-body experience and you're not connecting because you're like gone, then Mm -hmm. it's never going to work. You have to slow it down. You have to breathe. You have to like get control again. You have to figure it out by like getting back into your breath and getting back into your body. And then you can start talking again from the heart. But if you talk from the Mm -hmm. heart, People are going to connect to that. That's that's, what, that's how people resonate. And Actually, that training in Wim Hof method in Oregon when we were doing these speeches, it was really helpful to see people that had something that was prepared and people that didn't. That were just yeah just riffing. It's not for everyone. Like I know I know other people that that can't riff. They're just they just don't feel comfortable. They get too nervous. I mean, I get that. It's just I'm not good at that. Like I I I'm, I'm not good with a script. You know, I've done I've done some recorded breathing stuff where I work with companies and like, oh, we want you to record five breathing exercises for our team or for whatever. And we're going to post it on our site. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then the times that they've said, here's a script. We want you to say this. I'm like, ooh, this is not going to be good. Cause I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that I believe these words and I'm not, I'm not a good poker player. I can't pretend like this is, <laughs> this is who I am. Yeah, the times where I've just been able to like kind of get into a flow state and and talk and be nervous and excited. And, you know, in my zone, that's when it works. And it doesn't last forever. It's only like maybe an hour or two, I can like tap really tap into it. But yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of been my trick is having people do the breathing before we start. And I do I, I sneak the breathing in too. And if I can't sneak the breathing in with them, then do it on my own. And then during the talk, continually check in on my breath and slow it down and take big breaths and take pauses and really just let the things sink in a little bit more.
0: Is there a specific cadence that you would recommend? Is it just, you know, it, for example, I know one that you have practiced in the past, I don't know if that's still true, is inhale for five seconds, exhale for five seconds. Yeah. I've heard it's very popular to do box breaths, inhale yeah. for four, hold for four, etc. Is there is there like a templative cadence that you recommend for for those six breaths?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you can get your breathing down to six to 10 breaths per minute, that's that's a really good sweet spot, maybe less even five, six, four breaths per minute, that can be a really good place. So like, you know, I like the five five, because I like think about it like, like a foundational piece, like it everything in my sessions builds off of the six breaths to start. And then from there, I will sprinkle in the 5-5 five, five, and then everything kind of breaks off of that. Like that's kind of like the, the foundation of the house mm-hmm. and that gets people into a really comfortable calm state. So if I'm trying to create that safe, relaxed environment, that's that's where that 5-5 five, five is accessed from. But there are people that have trouble with the 5-5. Five, five. Like sometimes if you're too ramped up, five second inhales is, is too long of a count. Like you need something less you know, the Huberman physiological side, the cyclical size, obviously really popular now. And I think I use that as kind of like a way to like, to like, to like break up exercises, but it's also- and what it,
0: Could you say what that is? It's the cyclical side
1: is what it's called or the physiological size, a double nasal inhale mm-hmm. with a, a big exhale through the mouth or a hum. So for some people, Five seconds inhale or exhale is hard, especially if you're working with someone that's a really tight, shallow breather. And I count slow. So I can't get them to do five the first session or two. It takes time. But I can get them to do the double inhale. So I will do the double inhale as like a way to kind of like bridge the gap in between exercises that are stressful or that are causing issues. So that that's a nice starting point. I, something I always use now in sessions as well is humming exhales so they inhale for 4 to 5 seconds maybe even 3 seconds i work with people with als and you know 4 seconds is a hard is a hard count for people with als at times certain people at certain levels of the condition so they do a 4 second inhale or 3 second inhale and then we hum out the exhale so you exhale with a hum by vocalizing in your throat activating the vocal cords but releasing the air through the nose so you think of like chanting of oming all these things mm. are very calming for the nervous system they also it also can help stimulate nitric oxide production when you hum so it's it's also calming it's good for your lungs it's good for your immune system so i'll have them hum out exhales and the hum is is a non counted exercise like sometimes i won't do anything counted if i can tell the numbers and and the count is too slow and it's taking people getting people stressed out because it can and sometimes I induce stress on purpose but other times I'm really trying to alleviate the stress of this person that I'll avoid counting the whole time and exercises I'll do there is I'll, I'll create pauses and hold so I'll be like all right Mike take a full inhale in through the nose all the way in hold at the top and when you hold at the top Mike I want you to create awareness in your state while you're holding I want you to notice any tension, any tightness. And now when you release the exhale, I want you to feel yourself relaxing as you release. I want you to feel yourself letting go. Good. And like that pause in between breaths is enough to start to get control of your breath cycle. So pull it in again, nice and easy, nice and full all the way in, hold at the top again. And the holes at the top sometimes can be like a little sympathetic. Like there's a little bit of a clench, sometimes not. Now on the exhale, Make it nasal and go as slow as you can and feel yourself relaxing more because when you exhale, the heart rate slows down. So as you're exhaling, your heart rate is slowing down. And then we'll do this triangle breath. So it's inhale, hold, exhale. Inhale, hold, exhale. It's a triangle breath. It's not a box. There's no count. Mm -hmm. But it's enough space and time for me to tell you, pull it in, pause at the top, Create a physical awareness, create a body scan, notice what you feel, notice the tension, notice tightness. Now in the exhale, physically connect to the idea and mentally connect to the idea that you're releasing tension, you're letting go, you're relaxing on your exhale. And we'll do this and I won't count. I will literally just talk them through what is happening. And I'll explain Hmm. to them that even if they can't feel it, their heart rate is slowing down, their body is going into a more relaxed state. Hopefully, they're starting to feel it but you never know. You know, you, you assume they are and then once they get comfortable there, switch it up of course because you don't want to be too comfortable too long. You then create a pause at the bottom. So Then I'll say, okay, Mike, now on this next inhale, hold at the top, pause, relax into it, feel it. On this next exhale, as you release it, I want you to pause at the bottom, not for a long time when you feel air hunger take a nice smoothie inhale back in and then all of a sudden we're creating this non like linear non non symmetrical box breath because it's an inhale hold exhale hold but we're not counting we're not doing numbers we're literally just talking about what the feelings are and what the sensations are in these holds and in these breaths and just around that you can build a lot and like to me that's that's where i'm learning so much is like what are the building block exercises that you can Mm. build off of like that you can create structures around so like for me the five five this sort of like non-numerical box and triangle breath the double nasal inhale you can build off of that you can do these other things around it and that will help create kind of a more structured breathing session because if you're doing this for 45 minutes with someone you can't just do the same exercise over and over again you got to kind of differentiate and Depending on what your goals are, where you're at right now, I need to sort of read the room and understand like, all right, this guy's got a meeting after this. He's going to go work out after that. He didn't sleep well last night. His baby was up all night. So let's start really calm and slow because we always do. And then from there, let's create a little bit of like stress and tension and something to that he feels like a little bit of this energy in his body. And then let's get him to relax and release that tension and release that stress with calming breath for another 15, 20 minutes. And then from there, let's upregulate for the last 10 minutes. Let's get him a little bit more like energized and a little bit more focused Mm. afterwards. So that's kind of like, you know, and I don't know that going into it. Like, I only know that based on what you tell me. Like, I, like I said, I don't do scripts. So like, I don't Mm -hmm. say I have a session with so-and-so later today. And like, they always like it when we do this. So I'm going to do this. I'm like, no, like, I don't. I don't know where they're at right now. So I have to hear where they're at and I have to watch them for the first couple minutes pretty closely. And then I'll have a good idea of like where we should go from there. And then from there, where should we go after that? Like, and it's always exercise to exercise. It's not like I have a script and this is what we're going to do before we meet and this is the music I'm going to play. I mean, I don't even play music when I'm doing these virtual sessions. I just try to like let them listen to silence, which, you know, I think part of me would like to have music, but part of me is also like, let them just sit in it and be in it. Mm. Mm.
0: So we've been, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think a lot of the breathing that we're talking about is in the form of down regulation, which means uh, I'm shorthanding is that we're taking it from a hyper aroused, sympathetic, we're stressed state into a calmer parasympathetic nervous system state where we're, we're more relaxed. And I know that Wim Hof breathing and, and other breathwork methods, they actually induce stress. I mean, they, they oscillate, yeah. right? Or They yeah. can. So I'm wondering, there, there's a little bit of a tie in, you could take this question probably in a bunch of different directions. But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about chronic stress, and acute stress. Yeah. And breath works place, including Wim Hof breathing, or maybe other methods too, yeah. in inducing stress. Like, why is it helpful to induce stress? I've heard a lot of powerful stories from people who have yeah. induced stress. There's a big release on the other end sometimes. Yeah,
1: totally. And 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 it's a really good question. It's 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 well thought out too because Wim Hof breathing is is in in nature the beginning of it is a is an upregulatory exercise because you're breathing at a fast rate for 30 to 40 breaths, some people breathe longer and they go a few minutes before they take their breath. What happens then on the back end of that is is a little bit more, paris- it's more parasympathetic because you go into this long extended hold and in a hold, your body's heart rate slows down, like your body does this really interesting thing where it kind of goes into this like survival mode because you're in a long hold. So the heart rate's slowing down, the blood pressure slows down, You know, the circulation changes in your body, your chemistry changes, and all of a sudden you go from like this fast rhythmic upregulatory breathing into this very parasympathetic state because you're in this extended hold and people hold for minutes. You know, not just 30 seconds. Most people hold a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and you cannot be in a sympathetic state. To my knowledge, you can't be in this like acutely sympathetic state and hold for that long. The thing is, in order to like get people to hold that long and to force your breathing to go fast and rhythmic like that, in a lot of instances for me as this kind of new or what I've been doing now for a little while, like these people I work with, it's not healthy for them to push Mm -hmm. fast hyperventilation, especially if they're stressed out already. And I learned mm-hmm. that even before I became like a breath coach. I started doing workshops in New York City five years ago, six years ago. People were showing up really anxious, like really, really anxious. Like, like We would start a calming breathing exercise and people would just start crying. Or wow. I would have people do a breathing exercise and they would think they did it wrong because they lost track of what we were doing and they went into this really deeply relaxed state and they would start like beating themselves up because they forgot what we were supposed to be doing and i'd be like girl like that's what you want like that's what we're going for we i don't care if you did it right or wrong like i care that you relax and like clearly you relax cuz you weren't even listening to me anymore you just mm-hmm. drifted off like that's a good thing so i started to learn really early that like the hyperventilation thing isn't for everyone and actually even for me like there were days where i didn't want to hyperventilate mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know any other exercises to do so i hyperventilated and I always kind of felt good afterwards, but it was like this forced stressor. And like you said, it's an acute stress. It's a short burst of acute stress. So it's finite. It hits you hard. And then you come out on the other end. And most of the time, you feel better on the other end. Wim Hof breathing has that that mechanism to it where, like, it's really hard in the beginning because nobody wants to go... <laughs> I mean, people do do it and and you can do it in a very rhythmic way and you can really use your diaphragm and you can really get into your breathing muscles and you can really activate your breath. And mm-hmm. if you're a good biomechanic breather and you have a good understanding of the way your body works and you're connected to it, I think, it's, I think it's relatively safe. I do think for some people it's not safe. Like I do think and there are instances and especially if you're like – doing it near water like all that stuff is not safe. Like you cannot do this breathing mm. in water. You will you will pass out and potentially really hurt yourself. Um so that's that's first and foremost. I think a lot of this stuff gets glamorized and 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 put on social media and honestly the breathing thing really hasn't yet. The ice bath stuff is right now having a moment on social media and it's all about the ice baths and people going in for long times and, you know, all this and the other. And that's, that's awesome. Like, it's really cool that people are talking about it. It's exciting. The breathing thing is, is, can be dangerous. Like people need to be really aware of what they're going to do. Like I see these advertisements for these, transformational holotropic breathing sessions at hotels where everyone's on the uh-huh. hotel like banquet floor and carpeted floor screaming and yelling and crying <laughs> and, and I've had people send them to me they're like what do you think about this you, would you do this and I'm like I've done I've done them before like I've gone in New York and there are people coming to town and they're going to teach this breathing and I'd be like alright let's go like I want to try everything breathing related and I would go and it's really intense and it's a lot of energy to take on for people, like you're coming in from work, it's at a six, seven p.m. on a Friday night, you know, everyone's coming from work, they're all going into this room, they're all Mm -hmm. doing this crazy breathing. So there is a space for it, there is a therapeutic cathartic release to it. But like, if you don't know the practitioners, you don't know the people that are going, if you don't know what kind of breather they're doing, if you don't know where you're at with your breathing, you don't have a practice, there is a risk involved. And when I started doing Wim Hof breathing, I didn't know. Nobody talked about it then. So I just had an app and I did the breathing just like Wim instructed me like many, many other people, thousands of people did just like I did. Now I know better. Now I know if someone has trouble breathing calmly and slowly in a relaxed way, then I'm not going to have them breathe fast. They have to like kind of earn the right. If we're going to work together to breathe fast with me, that means we have to work together for a while where I have to see them breathe in a way that I'm comfortable doing. It'd be like taking someone out to a pool and not knowing if they're a good swimmer and then be like, you know what, skip the pool. Let's go jump in the ocean. There's a swell right now. and Like, mm-hmm. let's go swim in the – you know, it's like, no, you want to make sure that this person is is capable of of doing it in a way that's not going to cause them an issue because you can get respiratory alkalosis where you, like, offload too much carbon dioxide, and that's what you're doing. That's, that's the trick of Wim Hof breathing is you are – physically offloading all your carbon dioxide and you're moving your body into a more alkaline state because co2 carbon dioxide is acidic oxygen is alkaline you're pushing out all the co2 and you're putting your body into this alkaline state and then you can hold your breath for a long time it's a trick it's like a hack to Mm -hmm. hold your breath for really long periods of time there's Mm -hmm. other ways that you have to hold your breath like in freediving and other trainings that like you don't hyperventilate. When you learn freediving, like, you can't hyperventilate. And they think anything, like, hy- that's like hyperventilation and freediving. Like, you can't do anything even mildly fast, even remotely fast. Everything's slow. So the idea is you want to go into a breath hold with as calm a heart rate as possible. And you want to keep the CO2 in your body because the CO2 is the indicator for your time to breathe. So if you offload too much carbon dioxide and you go under the water, your body's indicator to breathe is off and you might not know when to come out of the water to breathe. So it's mm. it's really dangerous to not have that governor in your system to tell you when it's time to breathe. So I still like I still do Wim Hof breathing. I still teach it, I still coach people with it, I still use it in sessions, but it almost always starts with nasal and very slow and relaxed and rhythmic, calm breathing. I'll even have them, I'll even count out the length of the inhale for people like, all right, we're gonna do a little bit more of a faster paced breathing. Inhale for five, four, three, two, one, and let it go slow. Honestly, it's, it's a more exciting challenge or thing I think for me to do personally. If I'm breathing, doing my own breath work, and I can hold my breath for a long period of time to do it without hyperventilating. That's showing me I'm actually in a better place. Mm-hmm. I can hold my breath for a while hyperventilating, but I can, if I'm really feeling good, then I can hold my breath for a while without any hyperventilation. And I can just mm. be calm, centered, relaxed, and and hold my breath for a really long time and be comfortable in it and calm myself down in that stress state. That's that's the goal, you know? hmm
0: it's refreshing to hear your approach, man. I think we we live in an age where, I mean, my my first soiree into breathwork was through Wim Hof breathing too, and I don't yeah. know if that was the the best idea or not, but I I've definitely fallen into that trap with dieting, with fitness, yeah. right? To like to just go in for the most intense thing, go for the cleanse, okay. or do ketogenic diet, or yeah. look at people who look really great deadlifting, and I think it's having a methodical approach to what you're doing and and really Building a foundation with the building blocks step by step is you're doing an incredible service. And and I'm learning a lot from you just yeah, hearing sure. the way that you parse through of course, ma'am.
1: Yeah, and honestly, you you mentioned too like the acute versus chronic stress. Most people are suffering from chronic stress. So mm. when they come to a session, they come to a workout, like to be aware of that. Like if I if I was a trainer or I was a body worker or something like that, like if I have someone that I know is like 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 under barrage of stress constantly I wouldn't necessarily want to like stress them out too much if they're coming to work with me and listen there is a place for acute stress there is a place where it's really good for you and I think most of the time it can be if it's done in the right way and it's mindfully you know interacted with but I've had a lot of people lately that are really stressed out particularly now with like all the stuff that's happening in Israel and whatnot and I have to be mindful of that when they come to my session, that this person's not in a place where they need to like breathe really fast right now. They're probably breathing really fast all the time, or they're shallow breathing, or they're holding their breath half the day, and they don't even realize it. So my goal then is to talk to them, hear them, listen to them, ask them questions, and then just give them space to feel calm and relaxed and at peace. And And, and honestly, most of my breathing sessions, even the in-person ones I do, It's almost always down-regulating, you know, 80% of it. And I'll do the up-regulating stuff, but it's it's based on like not merit, but it's based on qualifications. Like there has to be a time and place and it's got to make sense because especially Mm -hmm. if you're doing a group session, you don't know what most people are coming in with. Are you going to be able to sit with them afterwards? If they do have a big emotional release, are you going to be able to be with them and make sure that they're okay and they're going home and they're going to take care of themselves that night and they're not going to like, you know, do something – bad you know you really want to be mindful of that and breathing is it's its a very it could be a very vulnerable practice you know mm-hmm. because it's this singular thing like you said that we all do we all do it so everyone thinks oh well why do I need a breathing coach or oh, I can do it it's Man. easy I'm going to do this or that or whatever and it's like really it's like we're so disconnected with how we feel we're so not in tune with our bodies and our emotional systems that we go into these places and these zones where we're like not listening. We're not tuned in, and then and then we go into a breathing session. And like all this stuff is like up here, and we don't know why we feel this mm-hmm. way all the time. And then it just comes out.
0: I'm curious how you look at this as a, a parent right now. I mean, I my my son, like I said, he's only ten weeks old, so I, I'm not in a place where I can pay attention to, or at least in a place where I can instruct him on on how to breathe healthily. But I'm wondering if you look at your kids and and as you raise a young kid like what what attention do you pay to their breath
1: yeah it's funny i i i definitely do i definitely i mean i I pay attention to everyone's breath even if i'm not related Mm. to you like anytime i'm around somebody i i it's like can't turn it off once you've turned it on so you're noticing Uh i'm noticing how a lot of people breathe all the time and with my kids you know my my son's young you know he's still really young so i don't I just notice if his mouth is open or his mouth is closed at this mm-hmm. point, um, if they're congested, if they have, you know, if there's these kids are getting sick like every other week these days at the playground. So like they've been congested, you know, in September and they, they've they been coughing. So I noticed that. And, you know, with my daughter, who's now like three going on three and a half, I've talked to her about breathing exercises and I've shown her I've shown her the double inhale and I've shown her humming exhales and she'll do it. And she mm. actually had my wife do it a few weeks ago when my wife was in the kitchen and when my wife was stressed out. She goes, mama, do the, the breathing. And she went, mm. and she likes the humming. <laughs> my, my daughter, I did the humming with her earlier today. We we're on the couch. She was watching Little Mermaid and you know she'd just gone back from the playground and, and, and her mouth was open a little bit and I, I told her to close her mouth. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I said, close your mouth in a nice way. And I just, I said, let's do, let's do the breathing exercise. And we did the humming and she did it. And she like, she like loves it. I think she understands that like, it's part of like my job and what I do. She's seen me guide quite a few ice baths at my house. So she sees people going to ice baths with me, but you know, I tell her all the time, like I, I work with people on their breathing and I try to help them breathe. And, and something I do with her is I'll ask her She loves flowers. So I'll ask her to pretend like she's smelling a rose. Like, oh, what is it like when you smell a rose? Like, what does that look like? Mm. I'm like, good, do it again. You know, smell another rose. And like, that's like my little trick. You know, it's funny to say (laughs) of getting her to like breathe through her nose and take deeper breaths through her nose. Mm. I had another, I have another teacher in the Netherlands who told me that he used to, his daughter used to have trouble sleeping at night. He had like a dream catcher above her bed and the dream catcher had feathers on him like bird feathers and he would have his daughter like was sleeping underneath the dream catcher be lying in bed with her. He'd have her blow out air so she would move the feathers of the dream catcher. So it was forcing her to extend her exhales and the Mm exhales calming mechanism for the nervous system. It's slowing the heart rate down. So he was getting her to blow out through her mouth to move the feathers and that was having her extend her exhales so like there are there are ways you can introduce it to your kids that doesn't have to feel like alright we're doing box breathing now <laughs> it's like does she ne- it's never going to work it's never going to compute <laughs> but if I relate it to flowers and I tell my daughter to smell something she knows to she knows to use her nose and I tell her use your nose when you need to breathe use your nose and listen there's times where she's having a meltdown and I tell her to do the exercise and she, doesn't, she won't do she'll scream at me you know mm-hmm. like so it's not like it's not guaranteed <sighs> but hopefully hopefully and I, and, and I saw my wife told me about this time where she told her to do the bre- to do the breath in the kitchen and, and she did it and I was like oh wow like it's working on some level like on some level it's, it's working its way through and, and that's the goal is so that like at least she's gonna know it's available and he'll know it's available mm-hmm. unless if they ever start playing sports which I hope they do I can talk to them about it there too. I can I can talk to them about how to breathe while they're playing and and things like that. And you know we can try to like bring it into activities because I don't think making it like the focal point of things is going to be helpful. I think if you just sprinkle it in and you don't try to go mm. too heavy handed with it, they'll be more likely more likely to embrace it. So yeah, it's it's challenging though. You know you wanna. You want to give them all the good information and have them keep it and do it, but they're kids, you know. They don't. They want to play in the sand and get dirty and do their thing. So you kind of gotta let them do that and figure it out along the way. But yeah, the flowers things the flower thing was a nice, was a nice little thing that I figured out along the way.
0: Yeah, I love it. It it it's feels like it. Goes with your ability to go with the flow, right, and not yeah. not be so regimented and structured it's necessarily. Tough
1: too like I I struggle with that with the kids a lot. Like my wife is, in a lot of ways, easier going with the kids. Like mm-hmm. I remember when we were in Utah we were kind of just becoming parents, you know, kinda of like you in the early stages, a little bit further along, but like, you know, our, our, our daughter before we had the second, she would be in the kitchen and she'd be going through all the pots and pans, like literally opening up cabinets, ripping everything out, find a paper towel roll. No, no, it was the garbage bags. So we have a box of garbage bags, like two hundred garbage bags. And she would like throw one out and they would all fly out. And I'd be cooking dinner and like there'd be garbage bags all over the kitchen floor, like around the kitchen island, under the sink, everywhere, all over and I would I'd like lose it. I, I just couldn't mm-hmm. do it. I couldn't cook in chaos. Like I was like, I can't cook with all this stuff everywhere. I'm trying to make you a nice <laughs> dinner and you're throwing <laughs> shit everywhere. And I'm like, kind of like losing my mind. And my wife's like, like, what's the problem? She's like, I cook – like I'm cooking with this with her all the time. Like this is what it is. And then we had to talk about it because she would she would always take out all the silverware. My daughter would take out every fork, every knife, every spoon, every chopstick that we had in our silverware drawer and take them all out and put them on the kitchen table or put them on the couch or put them in her kitchen set. And and she'd play with them. And I'd be like, now we got to clean this up. And my wife would be like, listen, she's going to go – take all the silverware, organize it in whatever way her little baby mind wants to. And she's going to play with it distracted for the next hour if you let her. And then we can clean it up and it'll take us two minutes to clean it up. But Mm -hmm. she's been distracted for an hour and happily playing, clanging the kitchen silverware. You don't want her to do that. What do you think she's going to do? Like you might as well let her play distracted in the water fountain, with the silverware, with the garbage bag, whatever it is, obviously garbage bags, not the safest, but you get the point. It's like, yeah, let her do the thing that she wants to do that. She's being creative with and she's expressing herself and she's feeling the textures of the metal or of the plastic of this of that and the other and let her just do it. And that's the thing. And I, I had this realization this weekend when my wife and I spent a day without our kids a day and a night for my birthday. Like, I need to do a better job of letting my kids, like, go with their flow. Like, mm. my son wants to, like, run around and get into shit and get dirty and play in water and play in mud. And, like, I'm not letting him do that because I have this idea that it needs to be all a certain way. It's not the way it is. Like, it needs it needs to be whatever way it's going to be, and I just have to be cool with it and, like, roll with the punches. As long as they're safe, that's all that matters. You know, mm-hmm. so, like, yesterday... I wanted to give my wife space so she could cook. So I brought him outside and I have this ice, this tub that I fill up with water, like a hundred gallons of water for my ice baths. And I haven't used it in a little bit. So I'm going to change the water out. So I realized I'm like, my son's going to love this. So I like uncorked it and the water just started streaming out a hundred gallons. What did he do? He's put his hand, he was playing with it. He was drinking it. He was like washing himself with it. I mean, you think he was like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's crazy. And I'm just like watching him and I'm like, just let him do it. Like this is the thing. This is what he mm. wants to do. He'll do this for the next twenty minutes and you just bought yourself twenty minutes where he's active, he's discovering, he's feeling, he's you know, the texture alone is enough to get him to get excited. You know, that's the thing. Like we we, we want it all to be like neat and tidy and non chaotic, but that's not this life. Like that's not kids. Mm. I mean listen, maybe you have a kid that's like different mine are not that way mine (laughs) want to be dirty and they want to play and like i i have to embrace it i have to like allow them the space to do it and to to really express themselves that way because that's kind of what it's all about like i i needed that growing up like i needed that space to like and and even if there were times where i didn't have it i still sought it like i still went for it i still tried the things that i wanted to do that i knew my core i had to do and like that's kind of what I'm trying to relearn with my kids and teach my kids is like, just do it, just go for it. Just do the thing that makes a mess, whatever. We'll clean it up. It's not the end of the world, but it's hard. It's hard. Cause you're, you know, that, that, that other side of your brain, that's like, gotta be clean. It's gotta be tidy. Like I want to relax. When am I going to get to relax? When am I going to, when are they going to go to sleep? When are I going to get in the house? Like, you know, forget it, forget it. Just let it go. Mm,
0: mm. Well, it's beautiful advice. I know Right now, we're we're in the throes of, I even hate the phrase, sleep training a, yeah. a newborn, right? Yeah. And there is a point where we're, we were reading this book. It's something along the lines of 12 hours of sleep at 12 weeks. Yeah. And it's very regimented. You feed them every four hours at yeah, a certain yeah. time. And you start to strip away. If he's eating four ounces at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, then the next night you give him four or three and a half. And then you work right, your right, way down. Right. And he can't eat earlier than that. And as soon as my wife and I let go of that being the strategy, like that we, we needed to control that he eats it this time and this amount. Yeah. It's everything seemed to just get so much easier. And so it's It's part of the
1: ride. It's tough, man, because you don't know in the beginning, like there's no, there's no magic. I mean, listen there, I have friends that did sleep training and they really loved it and they swear by it. We didn't, we tried, it didn't work for us. It didn't work for us. Like philosophically and, and, and Mm. what we wanted to do early on. It's hard. It's like, there's, it's, it's really hard early on. And, you know, so I, I don't, I don't know that there's like a right way or wrong way to do it. You just kind of got to survive in the beginning. And the communication between you and your partner is important. You know, I think, especially for us men, you know, we, I, I know I've spoken to a lot of dads and early dads and just, it's, and, and listen we don't go through nearly what the women go through is not to say that but we definitely there is there's a, there's a learning curve for us that we're not I know a lot of the ones me very much included like did not do well with the learning curve like I did not same. I, I didn't you know and I kind of was like well I don't do I don't go, I'm not good with babies I'm good like my two year old we have a blast or three year old whatever but it's like that's not fair either you know it's like it's it's too much it's too much responsibility for one person to take on so, it's 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 challenging. It's really challenging early on. And, like, it's going to be tough. Like, it's always going to be tough. And and you have to be able to, like, take time for yourselves as a couple, as parents. You know, have that space for yourselves because it's stressful. Yeah. The sleep is a lot, you know? It's like... Acutely and chronically, if sleeping, man. <laughs> if you're sleeping at night, you could handle the stress better. But the thing is, you're not sleeping at night and And you're trying to figure out what's wrong and what how to fix it. And I don't know, yeah, we didn't we, you know we didn't crack the code on on baby sleep, you know, with either of our kids, like our our first one, we thought she was a bad sleeper, then our second one came along, and we're like, oh, no, this is a bad you know it's like you never know. Like yes. it's kind of like <laughs> and there's those ebbs and flows. I mean they get teeth, teeth come in. they're uncomfortable. they're unhappy, they're gassy. All these different factors. It's like, the more you try to figure it out the more stressed you get the more yes the more you're like in it and you're just like there's no there's no rhyme or reason sometimes you know and yeah. I read it up I my my therapist actually recommended me a book that was helpful I forget the name the happiest baby on the block
0: yeah so you've heard, I've it. heard of that one yeah. yeah
1: that's the one he recommended we read it for the first for the first baby we didn't reread it for the second one but that that one that was really that was pretty helpful. I think that was just helpful in the beginning, just to kind of like get our bearings, you know. And listen, it sucks too when you're like talking to other parents and they're like, Oh, our, baby our baby's great sleeps all the time. And sometimes I'm always like, Are you full of shit? Is this person lying to me? Like are they really <laughs> sleeping this well? And like we had friends in Utah, this other couple that we were like they were like our our, our good friends in our neighborhood and they had a daughter similar age, a little bit younger than ours. And like their daughter was like sleeping all the time. I was like, does this baby have like narcolepsy? Cause like the baby sleeps through the night, takes two, three hour naps twice a day. Like, I, I mean, our, our kids don't even like nap well. It's not even like they're not sleeping at like night. They don't even <laughs> nap, they don't even give us a break during the day. And then, and then it was funny. Then we transitioned our daughter to, out of the crib to a bed to like her, her like we called it her big girl bed and she started sleeping great like she like a little bit before that but then when she got to her like big girl bed it was like night and day difference she loved being in her bed she would sleep I and mean, she still wasn't napping but she would sleep like through the night like it was great and then their their daughter started having a lot of issues transitioning beds and and all of a sudden it was like and so like that's the thing like it it ebbs and flows you know it definitely ebbs and flows like i definitely found more happiness, talking to other parents that, that had kids that were also struggling, though. It's never nice mm-hmm. to hear, you know, but it's, it's part of it, man. It's, it's tough. Mm.
0: Well, man, if you ever need to talk to a parent that's struggled or is struggling, <laughs> I'm
1: Likewise, here for you. Man. Likewise, I, 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 am I'm, I'm here for you as well. Actually, I had a, a a talk today with a buddy of mine, you know, same thing. He's, he's got two young kids and, you know, same, same stuff, you know, it's all, it's all like, it's all kind of part of it. You know, so it's definitely it's definitely challenging, and it definitely pushes you to your limit in a lot of ways. And then you cross what your limit is, and in some ways, it's a bad like. When for me, I've had like like meltdowns. I've lost. I've like yelled at Mm -hmm. my kid, and I feel awful. Like it, like Mm -hmm. it's the worst. You know, it's the worst, and you don't want to be that person. And it's it's tough. It's like you gotta. You gotta try to find a place where you can be not so hard on yourself and not have these like crazy expectations. But it's yeah. you know, it's tough to kind of like the society we live in, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Avi, it's been a, a rich and full conversation, man. Yeah. And I, I just have one more question for you. It's the same question. I I, I bookend the conversation with cool. the same questions. I always start with what was it like at your dinner table when you're growing up, and I end with what was. What is your definition of a meaningful life?
1: That's a good question. I think my definition is, you know, I think it's 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 making an impact and and connecting to people and like really like helping helping to like enrich other people's lives and and having adventures and having failures hmm. and success. I mean, I've learned way more from the failures than I have the successes. and actually, You know, I look back on like the mountain that I didn't climb and like think way, way more about that than the things I've done that, that, that have been like considered successes, you know, and it's who considers them a success. So, you know, always try to try to find some, some line of information or knowledge from, from different experiences, whether it's positive or negative and, and, you know, never, and and to never stop learning and growing you know mm-hmm. like i don't want to be like 60 and think that's it i figured this out this that and the other like i'd like to be like old and gray and still doing breathing or doing another you're yeah. working with people and like always have it evolve and grow and like you know teach it to my kids and like you know show them how how to work with people in their breath even if they never do it for work just like give 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 back as much as you can too because honestly it's like I think some of the people I work with that are the happiest have a level of like service that they Mm do. That's not like necessarily community service, but they, they're giving back. They're like trying to like help and enrich other people's lives. And that, that to me, that, that I think is, is a really good sign of someone that's in a good place. Like you feel like your cup is full enough that you can share with other people. Whereas a lot of people, even people that I work with that have the most, you know, the Mm -hmm. most material things you could ever imagine. The cup never seems full, never Mm. seems like they have enough. And that's a tough place to be in when you have on paper what everyone would consider to be everything, you know, especially to not just the wealth, but also the family and this and that. It's still, it's not enough. So like, I have to always remind myself of that. Like I have enough and like I have Mm -hmm. more than enough and I have to really embrace that idea so that way I can live to my full potential and give as much as I can.
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, I share a very similar definition to you, man. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And there's so many interesting directions we went today. When I was listening, I don't know if it was yesterday, but it was in the last couple of days in preparation for this conversation. I I had one of the former interviews that you did on my phone out loud. I, I didn't have my AirPods in for whatever reason. And me and my wife are both just saying he just seems like a a really good dude. You know, he (laughs) you could just kind of hear it in the way that he shows up for these interviews that I imagine even if you ended up doing thousands and thousands of these that you are showing up with a level of presence and openness that I'm really drawn to. I I really aspire (laughs) to that in my own life, man. And, you know, I don't take these conversations lightly, no matter how many people listen. I appreciate that. And I'm glad that you don't either. You know, yeah. you showed up really with an open heart. As as a father, I learned a lot from you. I sometimes snap at me. he's he's pre cognitive at this point and, and pre verbal. Yeah. But I mean, I lose my shit on my son sometimes already. And yeah. I think it's important for us to have these conversations and not yeah. to pretend that totally. they don't happen.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's tough, man. It's really it's really tough, you know, and and it's you know, you gotta you got to give yourself like space to to yes. feel things and to let it out. But like, obviously you want to, you want to, you want to do so in a way that feels good to everyone around you too. So mm-hmm. and I hear you. I trust me. I, I've been there and you feel like the biggest piece of shit afterwards. And yeah. it's tough, you know, you can beat yourself up over it for a while. So I, I, I do appreciate that you said that. And you know, I, I, I always am honored whenever anybody asks me to be on mm-hmm. their podcast. Like to me, when I was, First getting started being an instructor in Wim Hof method in New York five, six years ago, like I was like, when is somebody gonna ask me to be on their podcast already? <laughs> and then it happened. I was like over the moon. I was so excited to do it. And honestly, it hasn't it hasn't changed. Like anytime it happens, I'm like psyched. And it's always hmm. an honor. So I really I really do appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate Elisa Alisa for putting us in touch.
0: Yeah. Of course, man. So uh, to everyone who's listening, and and if you're watching YouTube, please hit the subscribe button. And if you're listening on audio, thank you so much for listening. Have a good rest of your day or evening, and sending you lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends, and until then, stay safe, stay well, and living with purpose. Peace. Thank you